text this morning is Job chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughingstock to my friends, I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate? Tastes food. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. It's a regular part of our lives that we have to weigh options as we face decisions. They are rarely as simple and as straightforward as we would like. And decisions typically involve choosing from options that all have pluses and minuses. Whether you are shopping for insurance, planning a vacation, deciding whether or not to accept a job offer, choosing a college, or deciding whether or not you will be a disciple of Christ and follow him. Regardless of the type of decision, evaluations take place of what we believe will be the consequences of our decisions. There are not so important decisions like where I might go to buy groceries to mildly important decisions like what groceries to buy, to very important decisions like which college to attend, what career to pursue, to extremely important decisions like whether you should marry the person that you're dating, or even more important, whether you should follow Christ. For Job, his experience of suffering has brought to his attention options that primarily have to do with what to believe concerning his suffering in relation to God. At this point in the book of Job, all three of his friends have in turn spoken to Job and they have told him what they believe is the answer to his struggles. And there has been a consistent belief system throughout their speeches. And Christopher Ashe in his commentary refers to the theology of Job's friends as the system in, in capital letters, the system and the way he uses this term, it sounds eerily similar to how we might talk about a totalitarian government or perhaps how we might talk about a department of the government that runs our lives even though they have lost touch with reality. The system of Job's friends is that rigid, oversimplistic belief system that says that suffering is judgment for sin and prosperity is always a sign of being right with God. There are some slight exceptions within the system. For example, the system doesn't say that faithful believers will never suffer and that unbelievers um, never prosper. But if they do, the system says it's going to be minimal and short-lived. For sure, the system says that for a man like Job, who has suffered very devastating losses, the only explanation for what's happened to him is unconfessed sin. 
So Job is left with options. There's the option of agreeing with his friends, the option of not agreeing with them. If he agrees with them, he is left hopeless because he is doing everything that is required as he understands it to be right with God. He is a man who is repenting of his sins. He is by faith looking to the Messiah to come. He is striving after holiness out of a fear of God. If he is being punished for sin, even though he has confessed his sins, then the gospel must not be true. He must be under the wrath of God, despite his repentance and faith. And then he has nothing to give him the hope of a right relationship with God. That's option one, and it's not a very good option, as you can see. The second option is for Job to not give up on trying to understand what is going on. The second option would mean rejecting what his friends are saying. He doesn't need to reject everything that they say. He can agree, and he does agree, apparently, with the basic principles of the system. But yet he's insisting that something more must be going on. There must be further exceptions. There must be nuances to what his friends are saying that can account for a godly man being plunged into suffering that has nothing to do with punishment or discipline. Of course, God knows the answers, and Job is sure of that. And that is why Job has emphasized his desire to have a meeting with God. And he also knows that a meeting with God is naturally going to have several possible results. If the system is right, after all, and Job is being punished for sin, he is going to be meeting with an angry God. And that is not going to be a positive experience. We can anticipate things getting worse. If, on the other hand, the system is wrong and Job's hunches are correct, that there has to be some good explanation for his suffering that is not about punishing him for sin, then he would end up being vindicated. He would prove his friends wrong and find an answer for his suffering, an answer compatible with the gospel that leaves him right with God. And so the anticipated results, if he rejects the system and pursues a meeting with God, are First of all, to face even greater judgment or to find some answers, find vindication and find comfort. And in the end, Job would rather take the risks involved with facing God and speaking with him and seeking answers from him than give up on his faith and accept a future of despair, which is really all that he's left with if he sticks with the system. This means that he is prepared to challenge the beliefs of his friends, which is what he, what he is doing here in chapters 12 through 14, which these three chapters are Job's response to all three of his friends who have now given their speeches. And he's not going to sit back and let the system go unchallenged. So Job begins his reply in verse 12 with these words that we can recognize as sarcastic. They are designed to highlight his friend's pride. They've made it very clear, as you can recall, that they think they are wise, they think they are knowledgeable, they think that Job doesn't know anything, that Job needs to listen to them and learn from them. They have accused Job's words of being nothing but wind and babble while bragging all about what they know, including the claim that what they are teaching is the wisdom of the fathers that has stood the test of time and that has been handed down for generations. They've even called Job insulting names that would indicate that he's not very smart. And Job confronts their pride by stating sarcastically in verse 2, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. 
And the word, therefore, the people is a word that refers to the upper crust of society, a word that refers to nobles, to people that the world considers important. And so Job is poking fun of how important and wise they think they are. And he's essentially saying that if they weren't around, there would be nobody wise left in the world. Of course, he's saying that sarcastically. And he goes on contrary to their beliefs and insults to insist that he has just as much understanding as they do. He's not inferior to them in knowledge or intelligence. He's, in fact, very well aware of their system. And what he does is to go on in section after section here in chapter 12 and all the way through chapter 13, uh, verse 19, and setting forth the different ways that the system actually contradicts reality. He wants them to understand why he is not willing to go along with the system, but is instead choosing to wait on a meeting with God. Well, in Job um, chapter 12 here, verses 4 through 6, Job points out that contrary to the system, so here he's pointing out one of the ways that the system contradicts reality. He says that contrary to the system, evil people don't always suffer. And godly people don't always have pleasant lives. And uh, he points to the reality of what has happened in his own life. He explains how in the past, he says, I called to God and he answered me, which is Job's way of saying that he has to be in a right relationship with God because God responds positively in prayer only to those who are in fellowship with him. And then there's more. Job is not hesitant to say that he is a just and blameless man, just like what the scripture says of Noah. Remember how Zophar told Job in chapter 11 to repent, that he is to not let injustice dwell in his tents. Uh, He was indirectly accusing Job of the unethical treatment of his neighbors, presumably saying that he had gained his wealth in unjust and oppressive ways. And Job is refuting that accusation by saying he is a just man, and we can recognize that the word just has several meanings that, uh, as that word is used in Scripture. So, again, if he's refuting Zophar here, he's claiming that there was no unethical treatment of his neighbors, that he was just toward his neighbors. He's saying he did not gain his wealth in those unethical ways. But by claiming to be just, he may also be Uh, making the broader claim that he's justified, that he's righteous before God. It's it's the word for justification by faith. And uh, he could be thus arguing, I'm justified by faith. I have fellowship with God. So it's either one of those two things, perhaps both. And then there is the claim, he says, uh, of being blameless, which means he's not a hypocritical man. He is a man who is repenting of sin, who is seeking to obey God in all of his life. And we, of course, recognize that, that uh, God himself, back in chapters 1 and 2, said that Job is a blameless man. Uh, so this is not just Job's claim. Um, this is, in fact, reality. Um, Job is a blameless man, a man repenting of sin, a man seeking to obey God in all of his life. And in all of this, Job is arguing that he is the complete opposite, then, of the unrepentant hypocrite that his friends think he is. And yet, despite his godliness, Job is now, think of this, how sad this is, how unjust this is. He is a laughingstock to his friends. 
And Job explains in verses 5 and 6 why they have turned to mocking him. It's because of pride over how they are at ease. They are ones living lives of prosperity, free of trouble. And they despise those who, like Job, are suffering misfortune. And so their laughter is the outward manifestation of their contempt. We read in verse 5, In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Verse 5 literally refers to a torch, and I'm not sure exactly why um, our English translation leaves this out. I think they've taken things kind of a, a step beyond the literal translation, trying to understand and trying to lay out what they believe is the idea here. But I want to go back to what it literally says. It refers to a torch. And in Hebrew it says, A torch is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. Contempt is ready for those whose feet slip. A torch is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. There is much discussion among commentators about the meaning of this verse, especially what is meant as this verse opens, talking about a torch. Well, this wording leads us to picture a person using a torch to light his way in the dark, and if he finally makes it to his destination and is finally safe, he's finally at ease, he throws it away. The torch at that point is useless. This is because, as the end of verse 5 explains, a torch is for those whose feet are slipping or about to slip. It is for those who are in a precarious situation. Maybe they're about to slip off of a trail. They need the light of a torch. But once you've reached the place of safety, that torch is no longer needed. So what's Job's point? Well, his point is that Job's friends are an example of people who who are at ease. Their lives are going smoothly. Their feet are not slipping because they've been able to know and to walk the right path. And having reached their destination, they are at ease, and they no longer need the torch, and so they throw it away, despising it as something at that point beneath them and worthless to them. And so the figure is of wise, godly people whose feet are not slipping into sin. They've reached this goal of being just and blameless and holy and experiencing the blessings of fellowship with God. Meanwhile, those whose feet slip are looked down upon with contempt. They are those who clearly need the light of a torch. And this is a figure of how those who are slipping into sin and the consequences of it are not on the right path of fellowship with God. And they need help. They need the help of people with wisdom. And Job recognizes himself as being in the eyes of his friends, someone whose feet have slipped In the eyes of his friends, he is the person who definitely needs a torch, the person who is despised as a sinner. His friends admit that he used to be a man of wisdom. If you can recall back to chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, there they refer to to how he, he was a man of wisdom who helped others, instructed others, but now they consider him worthless as a source of wisdom. And why is this? Well, they look at him. They look at his life, they see him in, in adversity. And in the Hebrew, the meaning of someone whose feet slip is, is someone who is spiritually going down the wrong path, they're, they're falling into sin, they're, they're failing to repent of sin, they're not trusting in God like they should, etc. But also closely related to this idea of, of, of someone whose, whose, feet, whose feet are slipping is the idea 
of suffering misfortune. A person with slipping feet usually, often, has a life marked by adversity. And so Paul is now the person with slipping feet who needs a torch. He clearly, based on how his life is going, needs the wisdom of his friends, the friends who are at ease, these prosperous ones who no longer need the external aid of a torch to keep them on the right path. And the most obvious and literal translation is to say that a torch is despised in the thoughts, despised in the thoughts of the one who is at ease. The person at ease puts that torch out of mind. It's no longer relevant. But another translation is possible here. It could be that the Hebrew says here, a torch is despised because of the splendor, because of the splendor of the one who is at ease. In other words, if your life is full of light because of all of your wisdom and your wisdom has gotten you this life of prosperous splendor, you don't need a torch. And notice that that word despise brings out that there's a prideful attitude involved in the casting off of this torch by those at ease. They cast it away because it speaks of weakness and need. And the point is that Job is the one who needs the torch. Now, of course, this is not what Job actually believes concerning himself. He's expressing the thinking of the system. According to the system, if you are living a life of ease, you don't need instruction from others to see the right path. You're on the right path. You're apparently a person of wisdom. And you then have contempt for those who think that they have something to teach you. Especially you have contempt for those whose feet are clearly slipping because of all the adversity in their lives. And worse is when these slipping people proudly claim to be innocent. And if that's not bad enough, some come to you as though they have something worthwhile to teach you. And Job understands this to be, you see, his friend's perspective about him. But then wait a moment. In verse 6, Job immediately jumps to describing a situation that matter-of-factly contradicts the system, shows that the people at ease whose feet are supposedly not slipping, whose feet supposedly are not slipping, don't know everything after all. Are those at ease always to be equated with people whose feet don't slip? Notice verse 6, the tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. There are robbers, Job points out, who live at peace. There are those who provoke God who are secure. Remember how Zophar said in chapter 11 that those who repent will be secure. And now Job contradicts so far by stating that there are people who provoke God, who are secure. Who are these people enjoying peace and security? Now, not secure for all eternity, not secure in the life to come, but he's talking about peace and security in the sense of having a life here on earth free of trouble. And who are these people as, as Job lays them out here? Well, they are those who, and it's shocking for Job to say it, They are those who bring their God in their hand. These are idolaters. These are are people whose God is an idol that they can carry around in their hands. And likely the idea is that they have worked at appeasing their idol gods by all of their ceremonies and various sacrifices and and their lives have have been successful and, and, and peaceful and they 
have come to believe that this is all because of their idol God, because they have done the right things to appease their idol God. And you see what Job is doing here? He's throwing a monkey wrench into the system. He's questioning the validity of the system by pointing out that evil people, those who have idol gods, who are clearly not believers in the true God, they do not always suffer in this life. Job is not going to go along with the system because it contradicts reality when it says that people at ease are always godly people and the people who suffer are always evil. Then he goes on to contradict and to question the system by what he says in verses 7 through 12 where he tells his friends to summarize and to paraphrase really the truth is all around us. It's not difficult to see. Verses 7 through 12 he directs us, he directs his friends to the witness of creation. And then he rounds out this section by telling his friends that any evaluation of the world around them will prove that the years have given him wisdom and understanding. So Job's main contention has really been that God does not deal with men according to strict rules that always make sense to us. Punishments and rewards, in particular, can seem rather arbitrary at times. And this truth, Job is saying, is is illustrated by what is happening all around us in creation. He refers to the beasts, the birds, the the bushes of the earth, or the land itself of the earth, the, the fish. They are all teachers in their own way. Notice he repeats essentially the same idea of how they are all sources of knowledge. He says, beasts, they will teach you. The birds of heaven, they will tell you. Bushes will teach you. Fish will declare to you. So what is it that creation teaches? Well, if we look at the context, Job is insisting that he knows just as much as his friends do. He's also insisting in the more immediate context that the wicked sometimes prosper while the righteous suffer. And as he thinks about these anomalies, he directs his friend's attention to what he has observed in creation. And in in particular, he is thinking about the death and destruction that takes place in creation, as verses 9 and 10 make clear, where he says, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He's still thinking primarily about people because he ends by referring to God's sovereignty, not only over the animals, but also over the breath of all mankind. So what is the connection between the animal world and men that Job is thinking about? Well, the majority of commentators that I have studied on this have agreed that while Job doesn't hear straight out tell us what the animals teach us, The clues from the context tell us that Job is thinking about how in the animal world, violent predators take advantage of the innocent and gentle. If we think of a cute and innocent little lamb, and then think of how that lamb is obliterated by a wolf, we have an idea, I think, of what Job is getting at. Among land animals, birds and fish, there are the predators And then there are the animals that helplessly mind their own business. And while an animal killing another animal, it's not a matter of ethics, it's not a matter of morals, no, but the principle is still obvious that in this fallen world there are things that take place that do not seem right. 
They don't seem fair. Why do fluffy bunnies become fodder for predators? Why are baby seals bitten in half by sharks? Of course, predators also get what's coming, so to speak, at times. But there are plenty of times when it appears violence and destruction has the upper hand. And all such violence and destruction has to be accounted for in a world governed by God. And it's this truth that exactly makes these things particularly troublesome. We know that God is sovereign over all of the details of creation, including the aspects of creation that we say belong to the curse of sin. By the way, this is the particular emphasis that some commentators want to give to this section of verses 7 through 12, namely that the main thing here, really the only thing that this is talking about, is that God is in control of all that happens. That creation proclaims that nothing happens apart from God's will. And so much of what Zophar and the others have said is obviously true as they've spoken of God's sovereignty, but yet that doesn't change the problem that Job has because in the animal world there is suffering and there is death and animals are not being punished for sin. And we can then apply the same knowledge and scenario to Uh, scenarios to our lives people suffer and they die and this is according to the plan of God just that fact alone should give Job's friends pause the breath of every single human being is in the hand of God people live and and they die according to God's decision it's obvious that even good godly people die if suffering is only for wicked people why do believers die Not only that, but any objective observation of the world will reveal that sometimes good, godly people die in unjust ways. They die at the hands of sinful men. Sometimes good, godly people die in agonizing ways that we think should be reserved only for the wicked as part of their punishment. So Job applies the knowledge of these things to what his friends have been saying, and he asks in verse 11, does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food in other words just as the palate thinking of the tongue thinking of the sense of taste it was designed by god for us to discern bad fruit food from from good food and good food from excellent food and so also the ear was given to us in order to that we would listen to the things that we are told so that we can evaluate what is good what is bad what is wrong what is right Job's friends have been tooting their own horns, claiming to be wise, based in large part on their age and experience. And Job now challenges that. He agrees that wisdom is with the aged and understanding and length of days, verse 12. But we still have to test the words that we hear. We shouldn't accept something that an older person says and and accept it as wisdom just because of the person's age. We have to pay attention to what that person says, see if it lines up with reality. And Job can see from a look around him that the system of his friends is not adequate to fully explain what is going on. Now, some commentators think that in in verse 12, Job is again turning to sarcasm, and that's certainly possible, because I think it's very clear that in verse 2, he is sarcastic there, so perhaps he's taking up sarcasm again. I think it's also possible that he is agreeing in principle with the aged being wise because he fits into the category, if you think about it, he fits into the category 
of someone aged, someone who has a length of days. He's not a young man. I mean, Job had ten children who were grown. And so it's possible that Job is saying to his friends something like this. You think you know everything, and you think that I am ignorant, but I can easily, easily observe things in this world that contradict, that do not fit your system. And since you think old age is to be equated with wisdom, I am going to claim the same thing as you do for myself and insist that I have wisdom to bring to our discussion. So in conclusion, by way of application, I'd have you to take notice of a couple of things. First of all, it cannot be overemphasized. It cannot be repeated too often that we are not to judge our relationship or anybody else's relationship with God on the basis of the circumstances of their earthly lives. If you're going through a tough time, a time of life that seems unrelentingly challenging, do not question the validity of Christ and of the gospel. I know that some of you face work challenges, where work can seem very much like it's all about the sweat of your brow. Bosses and fellow employees do not appreciate you always as a follower of Christ, You may have already been persecuted or persecution appears imminent on the horizon. And persecution is, of course, not only physical abuse, but it also includes verbal abuse. It can be as simple and as painful as someone giving you a cold shoulder. And working under the authority of people who are not believers takes a lot of wisdom. There's the need to be respectful, obedient, to work hard and efficiently as possible unto the Lord, There's also a time for speaking up for what is right, even a time for quitting. But meanwhile, unlike what many believers want to think, there is rarely work in this world that is going to feel fulfilling. The fulfillment really is found in working hard as unto the Lord. I know many of you face family challenges. Raising children is hard work. There are the physical aspects of just keeping a household running. On top of that, raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, it takes a lot of time and energy and courage, and it can be exhausting. There's also the relationship issues involved in keeping marriages strong, and everyone has from time to time relationship problems with friends and with extended family members. There are the challenges of singleness, of wanting to be married and have a family, and there seem to be no prospects. Or things are moving in the direction of dating, engagement, and marriage, but there are doubts and setbacks that make you wonder if your desire will ever be fulfilled. There are a whole host of daily challenges that if we were to accept the system as true would tell us that God is against us. But no child of God, God has proven to you once and for all by giving you his son that he loves you. His love for you is not to be evaluated by how life appears to be going or feels to be going. If you're trusting in Christ, you are loved. And second, let us not have the perspective of Job's friends who laugh at and who have contempt for people whose feet slip. To use the Hebrew wording in verse 5, let us not despise a torch because we have reached a situation of safety and ease. In other words, we must not ever allow moments of success and ease in life to become the occasion for pridefully thinking that we are people of wisdom who no longer need guidance. If you're going through a time of ease, it's not because you deserve it. 
It's not because you are better than others. Think of it. That's the perspective of Job's friends who are part of the system. They think that they are so wise, so righteous, that God is rewarding them. And we know that's the way they are thinking because their perspective is not to be humble. It's not to be thankful. It's to be prideful. And that pride is manifested by looking down on others, including Job. And so we need to be reminded of how Jesus treats people whose feet are actually slipping. Remember, Job's feet weren't slipping. But how does Jesus respond to people whose feet are slipping? He doesn't respond to sinners with contempt. He doesn't belittle and condemn. Jesus' disciples were asked why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, people whose feet were clearly slipping. And he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus also said in Matthew eleven. 28 through 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now take note, to live in fellowship with Jesus, there has to be repentance, repentance of sin. There needs to be faith in him. There needs to be a going to Jesus by faith, a resting in him. As long as you humbly acknowledge your sin, your need for his forgiveness, Jesus has no condemnation for you. Jesus actually condemns and turns away those who have the attitude of Job's friends. You remember the parable the Lord told of the Pharisee and tax collector, each of whom prayed in the temple? That parable is introduced in this way. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The Pharisee in the parable used prayer as a way to set forth all of his accomplishments. And he used prayer to highlight how he was not like other men and he went away unjustified before God. If you treat other sinners with contempt, look down on them and think of yourself as above instruction, you have lost touch. You have lost touch with reality. You've lost touch with your need of grace. You have lost touch of the gospel. You have lost touch with the good news of God saving and blessing undeserving sinners. We know that Job was, in fact, a man of repentance, a godly man who was unjustly mocked and despised by so-called friends, and yet these were people who professed faith. Let's suppose Job was living in sin. Let's suppose you have a friend who is living in sin. And let's suppose that that person's life is miserable and we know that it's God's response to their sin. Is this a time to laugh? Is this a time to despise your friend? Is this a time for pride and self-righteousness? It should be a time for gently and lovingly seeking your friend's restoration. It's a time to remember the words of Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of contempt. No, in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, be humble about it. Because we're all sinners. We all can fall. And that's how we reflect the spirit of Christ 
who offered himself on the cross for us. He came not to ridicule. He did not come to despise us. He came to save us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would keep us from the spirit of Job's friends, this prideful spirit of thinking that they do not need any guidance, this prideful spirit by which they would condemn those who are, they believe, falling into sin and, and, and falling into the misery of sin. Father, spare us from such ungodly attitudes. May we be those who recognize our own need for grace, and may we extend grace to others as we speak to them of the things of our Savior. Lord, we thank you that Christ did not come to save the righteous but sinners. Father, we need Christ. We need your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.